begin a new series today, I want to come up with something kind of funny a little bit and uh, kind of make you laugh a little bit. It's entitled The Lord's Baseball Game. You didn't know the Lord played baseball, did you? Well, here it goes. Fred and the Lord stood watching a baseball game. The Lord's team was playing Satan's team. The Lord's team was at bat, and the score was tied, and it was the bottom of the ninth inning with two outs. They continued to watch as the batter stepped up to the plate whose name was Love. Love swung at the first pitch and hit a single because love never fails. The next batter was named Faith, who also got a single because Faith works with love. Then up came a player named Godly Wisdom. Satan wound up and threw the first pitch. Godly Wisdom looked it over and let it pass. Ball one. After three more pitches, Godly Wisdom walked because Godly Wisdom never swings at junk that Satan throws. The bases were now loaded. The Lord then told Freddie that he was now going to bring up to bat his star player. Up to bat stepped Grace. Freddie said, as he turned to the Lord, he sure doesn't look like much, does he? The Lord replied, maybe not, but just watch. Satan's whole team relaxed when they saw Grace, thinking he had won the game. Satan wound up and fired his first pitch. To the shock of everyone, Grace hit the ball harder than anyone had ever seen. But Satan was not worried. His center fielder let every, very few get by. He went up for the ball, but it hit right through his glove, sending him crashing to the ground, and then it continued over the fence for a home run. The Lord's team obviously won. The Lord then asked Freddie if he knew why love, faith, and godly wisdom could get on base but could not win the game. Freddie answered that he didn't know the answer to the question. So the Lord explained, if you love Faith and wisdom had won the game. You would think you had done it by yourself. Love, faith, and wisdom will get you on base, but only my grace can get you home. How about that? I kind of like that a lot. It's kind of fun. You know, often I think sometimes when we talk about grace, we have a tendency to believe that um, the grace is all about salvation, and it is. There's a large aspect about grace that helps us understand how we're saved. For by grace through faith you're saved, and that is not of yourselves, but it is the gift of God. Grace is unmerited favor from God. And we often have a tendency as believers to think about grace primarily in relationship to our salvation. But grace really encompasses much more than that. It encompasses our past as well as our salvation and well as our life after salvation. For we experience the grace and the goodness of God throughout our entire lives, even before we came to faith in Christ. It's by the goodness of God that you had life itself, that you had air to breathe, that you had the life that you lived. And then by the grace of God, he revealed to you your lostness and Christ the solution to your lostness. You place your faith and trust in Jesus. And because of that, you experienced in the saving grace of God through faith in Christ and you were born again. And now post-conversion, after the new experience, you continue to enjoy the goodness and the grace of God throughout the rest or the remainder of your life. As a matter of fact, when you get to heaven, all all of heaven is because of the goodness and the graciousness of God. So his goodness is everlasting to those whom he, he chooses to express that to. And so we want to talk about grace today in reference to that grace. And here is a statement that I want to make as we begin this series. When people lose sight of God's grace, when people lose sight of God's grace over their lives, 
They lose sight of God, become self-centered, self-reliant, and self-serving, if not self-indulging. Look at that sentence one more time. When people lose sight of God's grace over their lives, they lose sight of God himself, and they become self-centered, self-reliant, and self-serving. That's what happens. If we fail to acknowledge the goodness and the graciousness of God over our lives, as a result of that, we lose sight of God himself, and then we become very self-centered, very self-reliant, very self-serving, and very self-indulging. That's what happens in this passage this morning that we're going to study together in Judges chapter 2. God's people lost sight of God's grace over their lives. And as a result of that, they lost sight of God. And then having lost sight of God, they became very self-centered, very self-reliant, and very self-serving. I chose this passage, I believe, in the struggle I had all week. You know, I really like to just kind of like pick a chapter or pick a a book and kind of go through verse by verse. It's a lot easier to speak and to teach and to preach that way. But when when you have the whole Bible to choose from, uh, it's hard that there's so many many awesome passages in here. I mean, a matter of fact, I've not read one that's not awesome, not just yet, but uh, there's a few that I didn't like because they spoke too directly to my life, but nonetheless, they're all awesome. They're all amazing. There's incredible stuff. There's so much to learn, so much to teach, and so much to know here. It's hard to know where to start. And so, and in this week, as I, as I really labored hard over where to begin this series entitled uh, Faith, Family, and Friends, as we talk about a rock-solid faith in God, I wanted to know how and where we start. And I wanted to start here where God wanted us to start. I believe God wanted us to start here because I believe as we take a look at this passage that we are one generation away of losing not the church, but losing Christianity itself in America. One generation away. Now, I'm not saying we didn't lose church attendance. I'm not saying we didn't lose church activity. I'm not saying we didn't or we're going to lose religious experience or religious practice or whatever that is. But I'm here to say that I think that we are one generation away of losing our faith in Jesus as a nation and as a church and as a family. Families are in danger today. And some of you are recipients of the fact that your children are no longer serving the Lord. Matter of fact, some of our children don't even know the Lord. And our grandchildren are now being raised in homes where they don't even recognize the goodness and the graciousness of God. And as a result of that, we are praying right now for the salvation of our grandchildren. That's becoming wider and wider acceptable these days. And I'm seeing more and more this, this, this thing that worries me a little bit. It d- doesn't worry me, but I'm a little bit concerned with the fact of where this generation is going and our responsibility that we as moms and dads and parents and husbands and wives and, yes, even grandparents, that we have a responsibility, if not an obligation, to instill in our children and grandchildren a faith that is worthy of passing on because if we do not... They will grow up in a Christless culture, in a, in a godless church that has ceased to become what I believe the bride of Christ was intended to be when Jesus first instituted the church. For when people lose sight of God's grace over their lives, they lose sight of God himself, and they become self-centered, self-reliant, and self-serving. I think that's primarily part of the problem with our culture today. They have lost sight of the unmerited, undeserved favor of God through Christ. 
And as a result of losing sight of the goodness and the graciousness of God, we have become a self-centered, self-reliant, self-serving people that no longer honor God with the lives that we live. And so I want to talk about just very quickly this morning how we can live a life and a family that's focused on the grace of God. Because I believe as we begin this series on faith and family that it's very important that we understand that a life and a family must be focused on the grace of God, his goodness in our lives, because it is there that God lavishes this goodness, this graciousness upon us in order to create a thankfulness in our heart, a gratitude for him that recognizes that what I have and who I am is solely based upon his generosity, upon his goodness. And when I recognize that I have and I am who I am because of him, I then am thankful. I am, I am grateful for that. And that compels me, that drives me then to live a faithful life for him. Because when I lose sight of that gracious understanding of who he is, I become defiant, rebellious, and I simply just walk away, abandoning my faith and uh, living a life that is a reproach to him. So let's take a look at the text. A life and a family focused on God's grace, number one, represents credibility. I want you to take a look at this text in verse four. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. And they called the name of that place Bacham. And they sacrificed there to the Lord. What's happened here so far is simply this, that, that Moses has taken the people out of, out of bondage. He has led them through 40 years of the wilderness. And the reason why they were 40 years in wilderness is primarily because uh, of their disobedience to God. They, they worshiped a false God, as you know. Many of you already know this story. And as a result of that, God had to wipe out an entire generation before he would lead the new generation into the promised land. I think it's interesting as we talk about generational faith and, and our forefathers that, that God said, no, I'm not going to leave these rebellious people whom I've just saved from bondage and captivity who quickly have worshipped a false god to lead them into the promised land. I'm going to wait till they completely and totally die. And I want a new generation to enter to the promised land. Finally, the new generation after 40 years is ready to enter the promised land. And Moses, you know relinquishes his leadership and gives leadership to Joshua, who then leads the people into the promised land. And they have conquered the promised land. It is God who has brought them to this promised land. He's made a covenant with them as they've entered the promised land. If you will worship me, if you will serve me, if you will do as I have commanded, I will make a covenant to you, not only to give to you a promised land, but I will continue to bless you. So there's a covenant relationship between God's people and God, and they enter into the promised land. The reality is upon conquering the promised land, they didn't completely do what God had told them to do. They did not annihilate a group of people called the Canaanites. The Canaanites were a group of people that worshipped a false god of Baal. They were wicked people. They were not people of God. And God wanted these people to vacate the land that he had promised to them. And as a result of that, they compromised on that. And they allowed the Canaanites, for whatever reason, to coexist with them in the promised land. And God was not happy about that. And as a result of that, he then sends an angel, a messenger from the Lord, a messenger from God. And many believe this was the Lord himself that spoke words to the people. 
And upon speaking to them, he said, you know, I'm disappointed in you. You have disobeyed me. You have breached covenant with me. And because of that, you have sinned against me. And notice the reaction of the people. It says that the people lifted up their voices and they wept. This is an incredible time in which the people of God recognize their sin against God. They repent of that sin and they seek to be reconciled with God by, notice, offering a sacrifice in that place unto the Lord. These people were not perfect people, even though they entered the covenant relationship with God. And based upon their sin, upon, upon you know, the uncovering of that sin, upon the suddenly awareness of their disobedience to God, they realize what they have done. They quickly admit that they have sinned. They ask for forgiveness, and then they offer sacrifice in order to reconcile the relationship that they breached with God. These people are authentic in their faith. They're not perfect people. And I'm here to tell you that we in this generation, and those of us who are moms and dads and husbands and wives and grandparents, we're not perfect, are we? I ask you again, we're not perfect, are we? No. I know we joke a lot about that in here, or maybe I do, about my perfection, but I always do it with a wink or a nod or a, a funny gesture. I am I hate to disappoint you, I am not perfect. But you know what? Neither are you. There was only one perfect person, and they crucified him on the cross. And so we must understand that as imperfect people, it doesn't make us because from time to time we don't live up to the standard that God has set and we may breach covenant with him and we may have shortcomings and failures and weaknesses in our own lives. It doesn't mean that our, our Christianity, it doesn't mean that our faith, it doesn't mean that our, our belief in Christ can't be authentic. An authentic faith doesn't mean I'm perfect. It means that, that upon recognizing my sin, I'm quick to admit that sin, to abandon that sin, and to reconcile my relationship with God. For God says to us that if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, 1 John 1, 9. Authenticity means that I represent then a faith that is authentic, that I recognize my imperfections. And if we are to live a life and to have a family that's focused on the grace of God, it's important for us to understand that, that it ain't my brother, ain't my sister, but it's me, O oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer because I am a sinner in need of the grace of God, but so are you. And how does that translate over into parenting or grandparenting? Or being a child of a mom or a dad who are imperfect. It means that I extend to them the same grace that I have received from God. And that, gra that grace is, is then received and entered and changed. And we allow them to be humans. But we must, parents and grandparents, husbands and wives, understand that our authenticity is measured not by our perfectionism, but it's measured by our understanding of our humanity, our weakness, our sin, and our shortcomings, and the quickness that we have to confess that to our children. I can't tell you how many times during the nights when I would pray with my children, one at a time, every night I would try as much as I could every night to, to kneel at their beds while they were in bed and to pray with them by themselves, not as a group, but single prayer. And how many times in those prayers I recognize my humanity and my need for God's grace. It's important for them to see, to know, and to understand that we as parents and grandparents too, like them, depend upon and stand on the grace that is necessary to cover our sin. 
but we must also be quick to admit our sin, to ask for forgiveness, and to abandon that sin. Because if we, not, if we don't, we become hypocrites, and they see our hypocrisy, and they will reject our faith in Jesus. It's not about being perfect, but it's about recognizing your imperfection and to claim the grace of God through gentle and quick repentance and reconciliation with God and with them. A life and a family focused on God's grace not only represents our credibility, but it reflects consistency. Notice what it says in verse 6. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his own inheritance to take possession of the land. This is a new period in Israel. And here we see in a quick sort of snapshot event this new era where now Joshua is dismissing the people from this gathering in which they have repented and reconciled their relationship with God and, and they've gone cleansed and forgiven. And now he sends them back to their homes, back to their families back to their inheritance, the one that God had given to them. And each tribe had a section of the land, and each member of that tribe, each family of that tribe had a section of that land. They went back to claim their inheritance, to possess what God had given them. And, and, and now they're no longer serving one man. It's not just Moses or Joshua making sure that everybody follows the Lord. Now they have been equipped with a word from the Lord themselves, and they have been empowered now to go and to serve the Lord as families. And who is the one who is to then represent the messenger and to deliver the word. It's the father of the family. And we're going to see that in a little bit. And so the people then are dismissed, and now the family units have now the responsibility of elevating not just the word of God, but the ways of God and following faithful. And these families faithfully follow God. They are consistently following him. Up until now, Joshua's people having been cleansed and now right with God, now go to serve the Lord as families. And this is where I believe the family unit is huge today. And then partially part of the problem that we have and we were talking to somebody here earlier this morning in the fact that, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm faithfully <laughs> representing Christ in my family. I take my kids to church. You know, kudos for you. I, I applaud, I salute you. I, I think taking your children or your grandchildren to church every Sunday is an important task and a huge responsibility. But let me tell you, it is not the church's responsibility. It's not our primary responsibility alone to disciple your children. It's not the church's responsibility alone to disciple your children. Yes, we have a responsibility, but discipleship begins in the home. And if you're not discipling your children at home, then you are not fulfilling the requirement that God has for your home and for your family. Because if they learn something here and they go home and it's not reinforced at home and not taught at home, then your children will be raised as, as a generation who will forsake the Lord because they will forget the Lord and they will live self-centered, self-indulgent lives. Because they've not seen discipleship in the home. And I must admit, in my generation, when I was a kid, we had a little bit of that, but not a whole lot of that. And it was really outside of the norm for discipleship to happen or to be practiced at home. And my parents did. We read the little moments with God every night together as a family, and we prayed around the table. But I took it a little step further than my parents, and I see my children taking it even a greater step than what I did. 
And as I see them exercise that, I wish I had taken more responsibility and done more so that they would then do more. And as parents, we are abdicating that responsibility and not consistently taking discipleship home with us and reinforcing what it means to be a Christ follower. Notice verse 7, and the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua. They were faithful and consistent. They persevered in faithfulness in serving the Lord. We must consistently, moms and dads and grandparents, reinforce discipleship in our home and reflect that consistency so that our children not only hear it, but they see it lived out in our lives on a consistent basis so that they will then... I'm not saying that it's... uh, it's going to happen basically and solely because of that. And we're going to look at that in just a minute. Just because I disciple my kids doesn't mean that they're automatically going to place their faith and trust in Christ and be disciples. But it's something that they must see for themselves and may learn from us as parents. Number three, a life and a family focused on God's grace represents credibility, reflects consistency. And third, responsibly communicates what I believe is the faith. It's responsible communication and communicating the gospel, the goodness and the graciousness that we have received from the Lord himself. Notice verse 7, and the people served the Lord and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua. Joshua dies in, verse, in the verses and they bury him and their leader is gone. But now the elders are assuming the leadership role of leading the people. And these are the elders that are in the, the tribes, that are in the areas. They are the fathers, the mature men who are there, who have been given primarily the responsibility as they were equipped with the Word of God and empowered by the Spirit of God in order to, to teach the children. And so these men, these elders who outlived Joshua, more than likely sat around the campfire, sat around the table while they were breaking bread and having meals they were training, they were educating, they were teaching their children about these great works of the Lord that the Lord had done for Israel. What great work had he done? He had spoken to Moses and freed them from Egypt, and he had taken them through 40 years of the wilderness and taken them to the doorstep of the promised land. And Joshua then assumed command, and God then gave them victory over the promised land. And now the land that these children are living, the land they are occupying, these homes that we have now built in this inheritance that God has promised, God did this for us. And they spoke of the great work that the Lord had done. They shined the attention. They brought glory to God, not to themselves. They didn't sit around and say, well, look what we've done. They said, no, the Lord has done this. The focus and the attention was upon the Lord and what he had done for Israel. Our focus today is much the same, although a little bit different. What has God done for us? I don't know about you, but I was in bondage to my sin against God and destined to an eternal hell, condemned without hope. And then all of a sudden, he invaded my life, and he spoke directly to me, and he welled up in me the faith that was necessary in order to trust Jesus as my Savior. And upon that, I learned of his gracious forgiveness, unmerited favor from God, where he bestowed upon me a new life now in Christ. And now he's made a covenant with me, and I've made a covenant with him. And now we walk and we live in this covenant relationship. 
And so we as parents must responsibly communicate what we have experienced. And I'm convinced that if you haven't led your child to faith in Christ, you've missed a beautiful opportunity that God has given you to do so. Patty and I have had the privilege of leading our three children to Christ. And I can't tell you of a greater privilege that has been. And how do you do that? You're constantly talking to your children or your grandchildren about the goodness and the graciousness of God upon your life and how he too can have that sort of gracious and good activity in their life. I'm not saying force them. I'm not saying to, to, to make them. I'm not saying, you know, to break them of their will, but just to talk about it so that it's a natural thing communicating with your children about, and grandchildren about how good and how gracious God has been to you. And the sad reality is that most children have yet to hear their parents' or their grandparents' testimony about how they came to faith in Jesus. And what a sad reality that is. I'm here to tell you, if you can't talk to your children, your grandchildren about your faith in Christ and his gracious goodness upon your life, I don't know who you can talk to. Yes, I know it's harder to talk to family members. And Jesus said it's hard to be a prophet in your own hometown. I get all that because they know you probably better than anybody else. But if our family and if our lives are to be focused on the graciousness of God, we need to responsibly, continuously communicate as often and as much as possible this incredible grace that we have received from God through faith in Jesus and how he has liberated us and transformed us. And now we have entered into the promise that is found through faith only in Jesus. We must communicate the gospel with our families and our children. Number four, a life and a family focused on God's grace not only represents credibility, reflects consistency, responsibly communicates, but recognizes culpability. That's a huge word, isn't it? Culpability, but it's a great word. You know why? Because it starts with C. And I had all of mine done except for this point four, and all of them matched except this one, and I found culpability, and I said, Awesome. Some of you are going, what in the world does that word mean? Anybody know what that means? Responsibility. You are accountable and responsible for yourself. No one is accountable or responsible for your own salvation, and you are not accountable and responsible for the salvation of your children or your grandchildren either. They are responsible and accountable to God for their personal faith in him. You can't force, you can't make your children trust Jesus and get saved. That's the work of the Spirit of God, not your responsibility. And I only have one out of our nine grandchildren under 12 who yet have been saved and have been baptized. And I keep waiting for the others to come along at some point in some time. But it must be their responsibility at some point to recognize their accountability before God and place their faith and trust in him. Notice Judges 2.10, it says, And all that generation also gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. They did not know the work of the Lord. They failed to acknowledge the work of God. They failed to acknowledge the work of God. Here's, here's the problem I'm seeing with this generation if we're not careful. 
They will fail to acknowledge how good and how gracious God is. And as a result of that, they will stray away from that goodness and live self-reliant, self-indulging lives. When you see somebody that's enjoying sin more than enjoying God, that tells you that they're, they don't understand how, how good God is and how much grace they have received. I mean, didn't the Apostle Paul said, he said, and we, we, you, know, we know where I'm, you know where I'm going, should we go on sinning so that grace may abound? By no means. You see, excess sin and lifestyle of rejecting God is a, is a person who misrepresents and misunderstands the grace that they have received in Christ. His grace compels me to live a, li- a righteous life. It, it's what motivates me. His goodness and his grace. Not because if I do, I'm going to get whacked over the head, but it's because of his generosity, of his goodness and his graciousness. It compels me to understand how much he's given to me, unmerited and undeserved, that I want to live for him. And I'm responsible for that. And it's my personal, and it's my children's responsibility it's, and accountability. It's my grandchildren are responsible and accountable to God alone. I can't force them. Notice it says they fail to, to acknowledge God. They fail to retain. They, they not only forgot God, but they forsook God. They completely ignored all the work that he had done for them. Remember, they grew up in the promised land. They were spoiled children. Spoiled. I don't know about you, but my parents spoiled me, and I spoiled my children, and my children are spoiling now my grandchildren. Can I get any men to that? They've got more stuff than I ever dreamed of having. And they're spoiled children. They didn't fight for anything. They inherited it. It was given to them. They were born in the promised land. They had this, these homes, this luscious land, and they knew nothing about hard fighting and, and working for something. And they were just, and now they were just, you know what? I'm just, I'm going to forget the Lord and forget that, that the reason I have this is because God gave it to me, and I'm just going to forsake now, having forgotten the Lord and lived the life that I want to live, completely oblivious of that ever acknowledging Him in my life. Sound familiar, parents, in regard to how you're viewing your children or maybe grandparents, your grandchildren? Without any acknowledgement of God whatsoever, we must understand that they have a personal responsibility to acknowledge their need for God and to turn to Him. And the sad reality is that sometimes they do, but sometimes they don't. And there's nothing you can do about it. Because it has to be theirs. And it'll break your heart if it's not already. About their rebelliousness toward God and forgetting his graciousness toward them and forsaking the Lord your God. You raised them better than this, didn't you? And some of us have guilt, remorse. What if I had a, what if I should have? If I could only relive it. And yet it's they who are responsible and accountable. They've heard it. They didn't see it. They didn't experience it for themselves. But they've heard the gospel. They know what Christ has done. They understand his goodness and his grace. 
And yet they have said, no, thank you. Not interested. And it breaks your heart. We must make sure that as we have an opportunity for some of you younger parents who are here who have children to constantly understand that you teach them personal responsibility and personal accountability. Because no one's going to stand before Jesus on judgment day, but they, and they will stand alone. And Jesus will ask them, why should I let you into my heaven? They'll stand alone. You won't stand next to a mom and dad or grandparent. Well, well, let me give you the answer, God. Let me give it for you. That's not going to work. And we must understand that there's a culpability and responsibility in which one day they're going to be accountable and that faith must be and must become their faith in God. Or it's not a genuine, authentic, credible faith. And so we must teach them that and help them understand their responsibility and their accountability before a holy God. Number five, a life and a family focused on God's grace remains committed to the Lord. These people not only forgot the Lord, they forsook the Lord. And they notice what they did in verse 11. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. This is the whole next generation. The whole next generation. They said, we don't care about mom and dad or grandma and grandpa. What they did, we're going to do what is evil. That which is wrong. That which is not right. That was as disrespectful and disgraceful and sinful. It's a, and there's no list here of what they did. But there's more than just what they did listed here. There's only one thing listed here. What? is that they serve the Baals. Not Baal, but Baals. And Baal was the god of the Canaanites. The people, remember, they didn't kick out of Israel? The Canaanites, whom they try to cohabitate with and they tried to, tried to live with. They left them there. They built houses next to their houses and families next to their families. And all of a sudden, these Baals, it's plural because you see, each city of the Canaanite city had their own Baal. There was more than one, and they were the gods of their own making. And they didn't remain, they, they didn't remain committed to the Lord because the Canaanites didn't acknowledge the Lord whatsoever. They were pagans. They were idolaters. They were people who made a god into their own images, into their own likeness. They let them do as they wanted to do and live as they wanted to live. Sound familiar? a God of their own making. And they worshiped these Baals. They forgot God. They turned their back on him. And now they're worshiping, following. Now they're loyal to a God that's diametrically opposed to their God. How did they get here? I wonder if generation before them is asking that question. How did we get here, church? How did we go wrong? How did we fail? And so we must resist this whole concept of remain com committed to the Lord himself and not worship the gods of this culture. Reject them. Resist them. And remain committed to the Lord. Because once we do that, it's a slippery slope. Which leads us then to we must resist compromise. A life and a family focused on God's grace must resist compromise. They begin worshiping these Baals, and before you know it, there was this huge compromise. Notice, once they began to, to go down that slippery slope of worshiping these, these false Baals of Canaan, 
And they abandoned the Lord. They abandoned the Lord. They didn't just disregard him. They left him. We don't want anything to do with him. We don't know him. We don't acknowledge you. You don't have any right or any authority, any place in my life. I don't care what you say or what you want. Jehovah, Yahweh, I'm going to do what Baal wants, what I want. Sound familiar in our culture today? The God of their fathers. Notice they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods. Where did these gods come from? They came from the people who were around them. There was this sense of compromise. They, they lived next to them. They went to school with them. They worked alongside in the same cubicle with them. Maybe they hammered the plane next to them. And as a result of this, this familiarity and this camaraderie and this fellowship, there was this social transformation, this spiritual transformation. There was a structure that began to change. And all of a sudden, it was Baal who influenced them. And they left Jehovah and they started serving Baal. And now it was easier to go to school. They weren't separate. They weren't a distinct people. They weren't separate from the world. They were now a part of the world around them. And it was easier to do business now because they didn't have to worry about God's standards of business. They lived by Baal's standards of business. See where I'm going with all that? You guys are smart people. We don't have to apply that for you, do we? Sound like where we are today? They went after the gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them. And notice how far they went. They bowed down to them as if they were genuine deities and they worshiped them. They were loyal to them. And they noticed this and they provoked the Lord to anger. They provoked the Lord to anger. Does God ever get angry? Absolutely. Don't you get angry? I'm not talking about that idiot in front of you who can't go when the light turns green or the guy who cuts you off or the person on the line who you're trying to call and you keep getting, you know, and you get angry. Found a mouse trying to make a home inside of my truck this week and uh, had to take it down to Mel Hamilton Ford and paid $325 to get it fixed. He had chewed through a whole bunch of wiring on my car and found out that my wiring is made out of stuff they like to chew on because it's made out of, you know, organic stuff. See where all that got us today. You think that made me angry? You think I've made a solution now to get rid of those stinking mouse and those mice in my, I think it's a mouse or mice. I've got a trap that's this big in there. You know what I'm saying? I mean, we put the little ones in there, but it's not working. He keeps taking the, the peanut butter and the trap traps and he eats the peanut butter. I know it's a smart mouse, but I fixed him. I got one of those supersonic things that booms out this electronic stuff. And let's see how that fixes his earplugs. Yeah. Angry. When I wrote that $325 check for Mel Hamilton, and they were gracious people. They could have charged me more than that. Yeah. Nothing like mouse poop in your truck engine. Yeah. Righteous indignation. 
It's a good emotion. Those critters that God made are in my truck that God made and gave it to me anyway. God got angry. They broke covenant with him. They broke covenant with him. They abandoned the Lord and they served Baals and this this female goddess named Ashtaroth and, and, and she was as bad as the Baals. He was angry. God doesn't just frown or smile at our compromise. Doesn't really matter to me, he says. A little bit of that is okay. Where do we come up with that sort of idea of God? Well, he's a loving, gracious, kind, merciful God who just lets me live my life any way I want. And I'll serve him on Sunday and live the way I want Monday through Saturday. And devil in this and go over here and do that and blah, blah, blah. And come to church and pretend like, and God says, the way you're living angers me frustrates me you should know better than that compromise is not something God frowns on and we must resist that in our homes parents what are your children watching in your home there's so much stinking filth on that television set today We had a group of people who uh, here in our church and some others who went to the school system here in Wichita and put their foot down and said, no more. Right, Brother Larry? No more. The world keeps pushing. The culture keeps pushing. And they want us to compromise. And at some point, we have to put our foot down and said, not moving. Not changing not accommodating I'm not not serving the Baal or the female goddess it's not God and lastly a life and a family focused on God's grace realizes consequences it's not easy to go here but it's easy to go here in some ways it's not easy because no one likes consequences, but it's easy because of the way that he's laid it out for us in verse 14. It says, so the anger of the Lord, notice it says, was kindled. Interesting word, kindled. That means he got heated up. He's not just angry, he's angry. He is at the top of the emotion that one can have in regard to righteous indignation, he is boiling, he is steaming, he is angry. Not just, eh, he's mad, angry, disappointed, kindled against Israel. And he gave them over to plunderers, people who were taking what he had given them. It didn't belong to the plunderers. It belonged to them because God gave it to them. And now he's saying, hey, plunderers, I want you to take it away from the people that I gave it to who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies. He released them so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. I'm telling you something. You rebel long enough against God, 
and you go your way and you forget God and forsake God and you keep right on living and God keeps talking to you and you keep living, at some point he's just going to say, adios. You make your bed, lie in it. And you're going to say, well, I want to get out of this bed, but you're not going to have the strength. You know why? Because the hand of God is going to prevent you from getting up because he's going to say, now you've got to reap what you've sown. Grace can cover sin, but consequences last a lifetime. And God is saying, you, you can't get up. You don't have the strength to defeat your enemies. Why? Because my hand is against you. In other words, his power is working against them. And I don't care how much power you think you have or how much willpower you think you have, how much discipline you think you have, you can't fight the Lord and win. You might fight your enemies and win, but when the Lord is letting your enemies win, you will remain in defeat. You'll never live in victory. And I know people that are shackled with strongholds in their lives today because they refuse to acknowledge God and turn to him. Notice it's their enemies. You know, the thing interesting about enemies, they like to project themselves as your friends, but the reality is they are not your friends. They're not your friends. The enemy is not for you. He is against you, and he will plunder, he will rob, he will steal everything you have and leave you dead in your tracks, spit on your dead body, walk away, and do it again. And we make him our friend. These people made the enemy their friends instead of being like Abraham, the friend of God. And notice, whenever they marched out of the out, wherever they went, whatever they tried to do, whatever opportunity they tried to take advantage, the hand of the Lord was against them to harm them. As the Lord had warned, he warned them. He warned them, you do this, I'll do this. They knew good and well, you do this, the Lord says, I'll do this. And notice not only that, but he swore to them. I'm making an oath right now, people. As you're coming into the promised land. You do this, I'll do this. You do this my way, there'll be blessing. You do this your way, uh-oh. Consequences. And notice they were in terrible distress. Terrible distress. I'm convinced that families today are in a lot of distress. Not just outside the church, but inside the church. You know why? Because we've done it our way. We've done it our way. We've not done it the Lord's way. And that's what this series is all about. Lord, what do you have to say in regard to your way for the family? And some of it's going to be hard, and some of it you won't like. I guarantee you won't like it. Because it, it cuts at the quick of the heart and goes against the grain of our souls that we want what we want. It's on the radio the other day. I was in that... They didn't get my car fixed in time, so I was, <laughs> I was in a lease, uh, a lease car. They gave me a loaner for the night, and it was a, a Ford, one of those that looks like a, 
It looks like a, a, a shark. Um, you know what I'm talking about? It's a white four. It looks like a shark. The little, Anyway, can't remember the name of it right now. And I, I don't listen to the radio. I've taken my antenna off my Ford, and all I listen to is Pandora or my own music. It's all Christian. I don't listen to secular music anymore. I did listen to some country music in my office Friday morning for one of our staff people who said, you never listen to country. So I put it on, and we listened to Mel Tillis for a little while. And You know what happens when you play a country song backwards, right? Yeah, never mind. You know what I'm talking about. But anyway, it didn't last long, maybe two or three songs. But so I'm, I'm, I'm flipping through the deal, and I hear, a, I don't listen to preachers on, on radio because I don't listen to radio. And so here's the pastor, and he's, he had this incredible story I thought was kind of funny about this little boy who came into his mom and dad and he said, look, 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 I'm seven feet tall. He's about three feet. He said, you're wise. He said, yeah, I'm seven feet tall. Well, how do you know you're seven feet tall? Well, I measured myself, and I'm seven feet tall. He said, well, what did you use? He said, the measure in my room. I said, well, go get it. Well, little boy went back in his room. Anybody hear this story? He went and got the measure and came back and put it off to his parents. And it was three feet. The measure was three feet. But on the measure, he said, one foot, two foot, three. And he, in three feet, he had measured seven feet in the three-foot measure. And he held it up to us to see how I'm saying. See, he made a measurement of his own making to make himself what he wanted to be, seven feet tall. And I'm convinced that's what many of us have done with the standard of God. We have created a measurement of our own making. And we have not looked to the Lord. Say, Lord, what are your standards for my life? What are your standards for my marriage? What are your standards for my children? What are your standards for my parenting? What are your standards for my grandparenting? Because I hate to tell you that just because your children are old doesn't mean you stop parenting. Can I get an amen to that? What standard are you seeking to live by? Is your life rock solid? Is your family rock solid? Is there a faith that's being transferred into your family that carries over to the friendships that you have? Sing it all my days I will see Lord your